0: So we are gonna be learning parashat Chayesara as we uh have been one parasha behind every uh every week. But uh you could look at it as uh we're fifty two weeks ahead. Instead of saying that we're behind, then maybe that will make you feel better. But really the idea was to uh was to make it a uh, a complete series of parasha, so we don't miss anything. And if we were to start a week late, so then it would be incomplete. So, in any case, we're going back a week. But as as I said, you know, if we if Hashem we finish the series, so then in the end it'll be a full cycle. And uh, and a person who wants to access the recordings can access them from any point, and that'll be great. So, parasha sarah is actually a very uh, meaningful parasha for many reasons. Uh, it's a short parasha. It's one of the shortest. It could be that it's the shortest in um, in the Book of... Uh, not No, it's not the shortest, but it's definitely one of the shortest in, in the Book of Bereshit. That's for sure. Um, and it's it really deals with just two episodes, which is what makes it uh, very um, tightly focused. The first episode is the episode of the death of Sarah and, of course, the purchase of the burial grounds of Marat Machpelah from uh, the Chitim by Abraham Avinu. And the second episode that's really uh, essential to the parasha uh, is the uh, selection of a wife for Yitzchak, which of course we know is the story of Abraham sending his unnamed servant, even though we typically refer to that servant as Eliezer. And the Midrashim assume that it is Eliezer. Uh, it never says that it was Eliezer. It says that it was Evid Abraham. It was a servant of Abraham. If we do assume that it's Eliezer, then Eliezer would have been quite an old man by that time, because Eliezer has been with Abraham since Abraham was at least, at the very least, since Abraham was seventy-five, and uh, he's already uh, like a hundred and uh, hundred and something, you know, well into his hundreds by the time that the uh, that the story is taking place here. Yitzchak is, is born. I'm sorry, is, uh, yeah, is born when Abraham Avinu is 100. And and, uh, he is uh, married at the age of 40. So Abraham Avinu is 140. So that's 70, almost 70 years since Abraham has left uh, his home. And so that would mean that this is after a 70-year career he's sending Eliezer on this uh, mission. It's possible, but it it, it would be... um, The simple meaning of the text Is that he sent a a trusted servant Not necessarily Eliezer But be that as it may I wasn't going to focus on that story Like I've been saying this year I wanted to focus on stories That I have not focused on as much in the past And the only real additional piece That there is to the parasha Is about the descendants of Ishmael And the subsequent marriage of Abraham Avinu At the end of the parasha Which is not um, long enough to devote the whole Shi'ur. So I thought it might be interesting this year to focus on the the, uh, the acquisition, the purchase of Marat Maybe next year we'll, we'll try to remember that we left out the end of the parasha, we'll come back. And that way, if we look over three years, I think we'll have something about uh, the selection of Rivka, something about the beginning of the parasha, something about the end of the parasha. So we end up with uh, all three components of the parasha uh, discussed fully. But... Um, I'd like to just uh, focus on the beginning here. By the life of Sarah was 127 years. These were the years of Sarah, of the life of Sarah. Now, this is a, a parasha and a week that oftentimes the uh, in synagogues across the world, they make a, uh, a, a point on, on the Shabbat of Chaye to acknowledge the people who are involved with the Chivra Kadisha, that are involved with... Uh, taking care of those who pass away, because it's the one place where we really see, uh, aside from the death of Yaakov Avinu, that we really see the uh, involvement and the uh, care for for the deceased. Um, So Sarat passes away, and it says she was 100 years, 20 years, and 7 years. Now, according to the simple pshat and those commentaries that take the simple meaning of the text, they will say that that's just the language of the Torah that it says. That's the way the Torah writes. It writes... Uh, the hundreds, the tens, and the and the single digits. It, it's not. Uh, it doesn't have any secret behind it. But the rabbis do interpret this. Uh, that she, when she was a hundred years old, she was still like twenty years old uh, in terms of sin. Meaning that, um, meaning that she was never. Uh, she was constantly evolving as a person. Even when she was a hundred years old, she was still like twenty years old in terms of sin. Means that she was still able to change, to reinvent herself, even at the age of 100. She never became set in her ways, just like a 20-year-old who might be doing certain sins or following a path that we think is not right um, still has the potential to change and that's why they're not considered fully set in their ways. And then it said when she was 20 years old, she was like seven years old uh, re- regard to her beauty, the rabbis say. Now, what does that mean? That means that there's a certain innocence and purity to the beauty of a seven-year-old uh, child. It's it's uh, it's It's a... It's a a natural beauty that is not a not a beauty that is a, a, a lustful kind of uh, or, or a uh, related in any way to um, uh, to to superficial types of uh, concerns, but the beauty of a child is just a genuine natural straightforward beauty appreciation of the uh, of the creation of Hashem, so she had a kind of a beauty that was uh, not a false beauty, not a beauty that was intended to uh, uh, to capture the attention of men, but a, a beauty that was a, a natural kind of, of beauty that was appreciated in its own right. This is what the, uh, this is what the Chazal mean when they say this 120 and 7. But Vatamot Sarah, Sarah died, She died in Chivron, which we know Abraham's, Abraham spent quite a lot of his time there. Abraham comes to eulogize Sarah and to cry over her. There's something interesting here to be said that, the, you know, the rabbis do say that uh, the objective of a eulogy is tears. In other words, the objective, a person can, uh, and I think there's a lot of depth to that idea, that it says that, that Avram Avinu came first to eulogize Sa'al, the first to give a sped, first to give a, uh, a kind of a eulogy, and then to cry. Meaning that a person, um, and I think it's very true. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, uh, a real insight here, which is that a person has an, a visceral reaction when somebody passes away, an emotional uh, reaction of, of the person being torn away. But there's a deeper reaction, actually, once the hespedim have been done, when you hear the eulogies and you reflect in an intelligent way. When you have to compose a eulogy for somebody that's a substantive tribute to the person, you really have to think about what they stood for, what they represented, and what they meant to people, and actually that process makes the crying that much more significant and meaningful because it's coming from a real appreciation of who the person was so the sabir of qata he came to eulogize her in other words to articulate what the enormity of the loss really was and then to cry meaning that that kind of crying comes from not just a visceral response of sadness which of course one would have if uh, a relative died or if a spouse passed away of course would have a very it would be very painful but to really think into who the person was and how significant when you go and you hear you go to any uh, funeral and you hear let's say of a, some uh, of a great person of a great leader and the eulogies really bring out the tremendous uh, you know the characteristics of that person, and the influence of that person, and the dedication of that person. Then the tears become more profound, actually, because then the mourning is over what the person really represented, beyond not just the individual feeling of loss, but the significance that's greater than that. And so Avram cried over Sarah. And here we come into the interesting story of Avram Avinu getting involved in a business negotiation about purchasing. The plot of land for uh, for uh, Sarah's burial, and in order to do this, he has to deal with the Benechet. He has to deal with the Chitim, who were the um, who were his neighbors, or you could say his hosts, because he himself was a stranger in the land. And uh, uh, I think we have a record for the disparity in number of people in person versus number of people on Zoom. I just wanted to tell you, you know, like Zoom is like. like twelve people, I think, and yeah. So um, it's uh, I, I think I can't I can't count, but I think. Um, in any case, the uh, he spoke to the. He said, "I am a stranger and a toshav and a resident with you." So. Avram has not buried his, obviously, buried Sarai yet, and he's looking for a burial plot, and he says to them, I'm a stranger among you, ger v'toshav. I'm a stranger and a resident, meaning, toshav has the implication of, usually, uh, um, um, it has more of a a stable uh, implication than ger. Ger is a stranger who's passing through. Toshav could mean, a person who's going to be here for a while. But either way, meaning I'm not really a part of the community, and if somebody passes away, naturally, they want to be buried together with their brethren as part of the community in which they live. That's very much a part of the human, uh, all cultures. All cultures' burial is very significant. So, Avraham Avinu wants uh, to get a burial plot from the Chitim. And, um, and he says, achuzat Give me an, a, a portion of, uh, for, for a burial plot. Achuzat Kever, achuzah comes from the word le'echoz, to grab, to hold, because he wants, in other words, this is an opportunity for him for the first time. Keep in mind, Abraham Avinu has now been living in the land of Israel for quite a long time, in Kena'an for quite a long time. So, because Sarah passes away when she's 127, when they left Kena'an, Sarah was 65 years old. So that means that, 62 years have passed that they've been living in Canaan for almost all of that time. And now um, he, he has never, though, in all this time, purchased any piece of real estate in the Canaan. He has been ger v'toshav. He's just been a stranger and a resident, kind of a squatter, but not, um, not in possession of any land. And so he says to them, kever give me a possession of a kever, of some kind of a burial plot so that I can bury Sarah. Now to us, that seems like a very normal kind of a request, and it's just a business matter. Why can't they, uh, you know, he, he should simply be able to, uh, uh, to to pay the money and to purchase the plot. But they say, Now, literally, they translate this as, a prince of God you are in our midst. And the Midrashim interpret it that way too. But Nisi Elohim can also mean a great Prince. In other words, sometimes the word Elohim in Tanakh is used to mean great, not necessarily uh, to mean godly. But both might be true here. In the best of our kvarim, in the best of our uh, of our burial plots, you should bury your dead. Nobody among us would withhold from you the opportunity to bury in their plot. In other words, this is very significant. I think we miss this detail, and that's why I like to go over the stories that are often glossed over to some extent. We miss this detail that the Benechet don't want to give Abraham a plot in the land. They don't want to give Abraham Avinu a possession in the land. They don't want to give him a piece of property. They want him to bury Sarah in one of their burial plots. Okay. In other words, they want to maintain possession of the entire land. And allow Avram the favor, of course, you are a great person, you are a great leader, you are a godly person. We want to allow you to bury your wife, of course. You've lived here for 60-something years uh, to, uh, to bury your wife in the land, but bury her in one of our plots. In other words, we're not going to sell you a plot that will become the possession of Avraham Avinu. We're going, to, we're going to allow you, out of the goodness of our hearts and our graciousness, to bury among us. Among us. In other words, the idea is that they want to show, first of all, their possession of the land. They don't want to indic- they don't want to suggest that Avram Avinu in any way has any right to the land, number one. And number two, it's a it's it would be for them an honor and a privilege that Avram would choose to be buried among them. In other words, when you when you're buried in a certain place, and I've talked about this many times before. When you're buried in a certain place, it shows an identification with that place. And that's why Yaakov Avinu, for example, not only did he not want to be buried in Egypt because he didn't want to be identified with with Egypt and the Egyptian culture and idolatry, he wanted to be buried in Eretz Yisrael because that was uh, the place that really represented who he was. And a person will typically want to be buried in the country that they most strongly identify with. And that's why it was so politically incorrect. If you go back to the story of Yosef and Yaakov, it was a very politically complicated situation between Yosef and Paro negotiating the burial of Yaakov, that Yaakov, who had become a kind of an icon in Egypt and was so revered in Mitzrayim, was now going to be leaving and and an official of the stature of Yosef, uh, who was seen as a treasure of Egypt and an Egyptian, again, an Egyptian celebrity would take their father to a foreign country to be buried. That's how the Mitzrayim perceived it. And that's why we see that, that uh, Paro said to Yosef, uh, go ahead. He only allowed Yosef to go and bury his father in Israel because he had promised to his father He had sworn to his father that he would do it. But if he had not made the oath, then Paro would have said, I'm I'm not allowing you to go. And as it was, he made him give him a state funeral. The embalming and all of the things that they did for Yaakov were a state funeral. And the Egyptian uh, entourage that went together with Yosef to bury Yaakov. In other words, it was was politically complicated. Because in a way, uh, imagine if an American Jewish uh, politician wanted to be buried in Israel. So it would be like, imagine if, uh, you know I'm using just as an example. Uh, imagine if like uh, one day uh, Senator Lieberman passed away and wanted to be buried in Israel. I think a lot of people would be offended. They would say, you served this country, you were a senator here and all that. Uh, how can you now say that America is not good enough for you to be buried? I think it would be politically complicated. And I was wondering, Rabbi Jonathan Sacks who just passed away, he was chief rabbi of England, of the you know of the British Empire, actually. And I w- and some people said, oh, is he going to be buried in Israel? And my first Instinct was that he would not be, because I figured that that would again be like an offense to the uh, to the country that he served. They would say, "Well, how can you be the chief rabbi in our country and then be buried in a different country?" And that's what they actually they buried him in England. So the um, the the point is that, or and I and I've oftentimes used this example, even though Lahavdil he's not uh, he's just an ordinary Jew. But when Mir Kach died, uh, this this example always really jumped out at me, even though Mir Kach was uh, very. Um, outspoken about being Jewish and it was very, his Jewish identity was very important to him. Um, He was, he wanted to be buried in Manhattan because his, um, because he had such a deep connection to the city, but there's no Jewish cemetery on Manhattan Island. So uh, some, he asked some rabbi, I don't know exactly what kind of rabbi or who, but he asked someone and he basically has like a separate area in the cemetery that is away from all of the other graves. So it's not like among uh, uh, other uh, religions or anything like that, people of other faiths. It's his own separate area, but he wanted to be buried in Manhattan. And so on his, if, you, if you've ever seen his, um, his headstone, it actually, it's very, it, 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 uh, it, set, it declares his Jewishness in many different ways. It's actually pretty, uh, pretty impressive. And a lot of thought obviously went into it. If you Google it, you can see um uh, headstone. But in any case, the point that I'm bringing out is not about Merkach, and it's not even about Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, and it's not even about Yaakov Avino. The point is that where a person is buried says what place they identify with the most. And so for Avram Avinu, it was very important that the burial of the first generation of Jews be in Eretz Israel. And the Chitim also, I think, understood the political significance of that statement, that basically Avram Avinu, in a way, is laying claim to Eretz Yisrael by wanting to be buried there or wanting his wife to be buried there. And that's why they say, no, 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 we're not going to give you a plot of land here. We're going to allow you to be buried amongst our dead, meaning you can be buried in one of our cemeteries. Of course, we're not going to deny you that because we honor you, we respect you, we think very highly of you. But you can't have your own plot because that would be implying um, a uh, a possession of the land that we uh, and we reject your uh, your right to a possession of the land. Yes. How do we know that the Haaretz had the burial? Land?
1: I can't it says, understand.
0: Does that say bury, uh, bury her among the dead of the haretis. It Just says bury us. Bury her among us. No, it says bury her in our bu- burial plots. So they had a cemetery. Well, may, may I ask what the pesuk is? In the best of our burial plots. So they had a cemetery or of some sort. Azhar well, was the first one who came up with this idea. I mean, you, 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 that was the whole idea that he went among the whole combination of the goyim. Look how important it is because there is an olam Haba, So therefore, very good for Sarah. Right, but, but there was a concept of burial even before that. It's just that people typically buried, you know, had their own. You see, all cultures from as far back as we know had burial. Then people typically were buried amongst people of their own, uh, you know, whatever their group was, whatever their tribe was, whatever. Um, that was always the case. The most of them, they burn. That's not necessarily true, because you right, see that. Uh, so I say you see that the Chitim obviously had burial plots because they said we'll offer you the best of our burial plots. So obviously, they did have. I'm not saying that that's what every nation had, but the Egyptians buried. Um, they they put their their pharaohs in those pyramids for sort of tombs, but they buried people on the ground. Um, the ordinary people. In any case, so I guess it differed from culture to culture. But the um, but the idea was that Abraham Avinu wants to purchase a, a burial plot. They don't want him allow, uh, to allow him to do that, but they are willing to tolerate that he will bury amongst them. Now, here comes an interesting conflict because on one hand, Avraham Avinu views this both as a statement of his independence uh, from the chitim. He needs to show, and this is always the balance that Abraham Avinu needs to strike. On one hand, he wants to maintain cordial relations with the chitim. He's not trying to alienate anybody, and in fact he would like to reach out to them. He's always reaching out to people and trying to teach them about Hashem. But at the same time, he needs to show his independence and that he's separate. So he doesn't want to be buried together with Uh, the chitim because that would again dilute and distort his independence and his separateness from these other cultures. So there's there's an element here of wanting to possess a piece of the land which will be the first acquisition by a Jew in the land of Israel. There's also an element of wanting to be distinct from the khitim. So they're saying, there's two implications here. First of all, we don't want to give you a plot of land that's going to belong to you, Abraham, because it doesn't belong to you, and it belongs to us. But there's also the element of, we want you to be buried among us. Meaning, we don't want to cede to you any ownership in the land. And also, we don't want you to be distinct from us. We want to bury you together with us, because you're one of us. We're, we're accepting you as one of us. Now, Abraham Avinu obviously doesn't want that. He wants to be distinct um, in in burial and the um, and the and the commentaries explain that there's a reason for that. That obviously you know first of all Jewish identity has to always be distinct from the ent- identity of the nations of the world. But also, it's not only an identity in this world. There's also the idea of identity uh, in Olam Habah and the idea that a person who is a tzaddik not only in this world is different, but in the next world is also different. And therefore, there's a uh, uh, there's a a, a a concept that even in death there's a distinction between the the, the righteous and and. And, and the wicked, and so therefore, Avraham Avinu wants this to be distinct, and that, that's the, uh, uh, this distinction is very critical, but they want to dilute that. They want to embrace Avraham Avinu for two reasons. First of all, for political reasons, because they don't want to grant to an outsider any ownership in the land, especially perhaps they were aware that Avraham Avinu had uh, a vision of one day being the, uh, his, his descendants would own that land and they, they didn't want to give in to that, but also they wanted to kind of nullify the distinction between Avraham Avinu and Sarah Imenu as figures who were totally different and other than them, they wanted to kind of water that down and say, no, they're really one of us and they, they could be assimilated among us, at least buried among us, would be a way of assimilating. And the, and the truth is, like I mentioned before, that Jewish people, typically, even Jewish people who are assimilated, who are very assimilated, typically, I wouldn't say exclusively, but typically will be buried in Jewish cemeteries. okay. I, we used to say there are two things Jews would do: marry Jews and be buried with jews now married with jews is uh, is in America is becoming weaker, but definitely being buried with Jews is still very commonly done in other words it's one of the things that a person's religion uh, has the last word on when they're buried, even when they're not that uh, involved with their religion like most Catholics will be buried in a Catholic cemetery and most uh, uh, and, and Jews will be buried in a Jewish cemetery um even today, even if they are not necessarily uh, very uh, strongly affiliated with their uh, with their religion. Is that a halacha or is that just a custom what? To to have separate uh, can, No no can it's, a halacha. A halacha. it's a halacha. It's a halacha. To have separate Jewish cemetery? Is, is it midoraita it, it? can't be midoraita, but it's uh, but it's it's a halacha. That we can, we can be or cannot be. Cannot be. Why not? Because there's no such mitzvah in Torah. But it's uh but it, there, is it the source, no? What? The you can't learn a halakha for the taryag mitzvot from something Abraham Avinu did because he's from before the Torah, so we can't necessarily know. But um, but that you need to have uh, separate. It is a halakha that you have to have separate uh, separate Jewish cemetery. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and yeah, and and most uh, at least a certain distance between Jewish and non Jewish cemetery for sure. I mean, it's not necessarily there has to be a totally different field. I mean, you could potentially have like one large area and have a separate sections. I don't think that there's any rule that you have to have totally separate areas that are, um, you know, miles apart. But the idea of having a separate section, for sure. So like it's, a couple it's a problem. Yeah, it's a big problem. They wouldn't be allowed to. I mean, either one, one of them, the, the non-Jewish spouse wouldn't be allowed to be buried in the Jewish cemetery That's for sure. They have certain interfaith cemeteries where they, you know, accommodate both sides, but that would be, you know, obviously that's not in accordance with halakha. In any case, so the, um, so yeah, so they don't, they want Abraham Avinu to be buried with them for two reasons. Number one is to maintain control, uh, over Eretz Israel and to show that he's not really that distinct from them, that he's one of them and that he's a, he, it's an honor for them to have him be buried with them. He wants to show the opposite on both. He wants to show that ultimately this land is the possession of, of his descendants and also to show that, um, that he is, uh, distinct from them that the, that the way of Torah that the way of Hashem is distinct not only in this world but also in the next world now they, so they, he says to them so he bows to them in thanks for their uh, willingness to accommodate him but then he says I want you to do me a favor If you really want me, if you really want to help me, and you really want me to bury my dead, please speak to Ephron ben Sochar on my behalf. In other words, you could see from this, (coughs) like, why doesn't Avraham Avinu just go and talk to Ephron himself? He knows who Ephron is. And obviously, Avraham Avinu is known as a distinguished personality because they're saying you're a prince of God or you're a great prince in our midst. So obviously, he's not an unknown person. Why can't Abraham Avinu go knock on the door of Ephron and say, hello, Mr. Ephron Achiti, I would like to buy your field or I would like to buy your burial plot or your cave. Why does he have to go through a middleman of asking the Khitim to go and uh, in, 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 intercede on his behalf? What's the objective of that? You see that he understood that there, was an, uh, there were objections on the political and societal level to the idea that he would acquire this plot in their midst, then it would be a distinct plot. It would be like, give, let me buy from you a, a burial plot. that will be a distinctively Jewish burial area, and not not for anybody else. So that's making a very strong statement. Uh, because up till now, Avraham Avinu has basically shown his his separateness from by not settling and not assimilating into any of the cultures around them, but also not uh, not acquiring any plot of land that was totally. Uh, uh, separate from anyone else The only thing we see close to that Is when he plants an orchard But he does that at the behest And with the permission of Avi Melech In the Eretz Plishtim Not acquiring the land But being allowed to use it For whatever purpose he wants to use it for That's different Than here where he wants to acquire it So you could see that Avram wants them to ask Ephron Because he realizes that by asking them That means that he has the consent Of the community in what he wants to do And so they go and they bring Ephron and uh, and he says, uh, please speak to him. <speaking in Hebrew> he says, listen, I would like the Marata Machpelah, the double cave, is what it's what most of the translators translate that is on the edge of his field, I will pay full price for it, it will be in your midst, but as a burial acquisition for myself. In other words, he's saying it will be in your midst, in the sense it will be geographically in your midst, but it will be 100% owned by me, and with exclusive rights will be mine, but I'm willing to pay for it. In other words, He doesn't want it to be a gift. And there's an important reason why he doesn't want it to be a gift. The same reason why he didn't want to take gifts from Melech Sedom and all of that. Because once you start taking gifts from individuals, you're indebted to them and you're empowering them. And they will take credit for things. And they they will make... claims to things that they, bo- that, you know, in, in terms of the uh, proprietary rights to things that are not really true. That's why g- taking gifts is always bad. Buying things and paying in full price is always good because then the other person can never turn around and say, well, you know, I actually gave it to you as a gift. Well, I actually gave it to you for a discount. So it's not really, you know, it's not really 100% yours. And, and really, I gave you a break and really you have to thank me for that. That cannot happen because Avraham Avinu pays in full price. And we see the same thing, David HaMelech, when he purchases uh, Harabayit, he purchases full price because he doesn't want there to be any later. Anybody come along and say, well, that's not really yours. We gave you a discount and, 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 and you, you, you know, we, didn't, we didn't pay because we graciously said you could build the Bet HaMikdash on this mountain. But we were just saying that as a kindness and now we want to take it back, which is what the Chitim could have said. Um, if Avram Avinu did not pay in full. So he wanted it to be very clear that this was a legal transfer of ownership. And Ephron, you see that they didn't actually have to go and ask Ephron to come. He was there. But what Avram was saying was, I want your assent and your agreement that I can make this deal with Ephron. And they agreed. So Ephron says, he says, so Ephron says, I'm going to give you the entire field and the cave in it I'm going to give you before the eyes of my people I've given it to you. Bury your dead. Now what does is, what is Ephron add here that wasn't said before? Avram said, I just want the cave. Right. Avram said, I just want the cave. Which is on the edge of the field. He didn't want the whole field. Ephron says, I'll give you the entire field. Now, why is he saying that? So seemingly the reason he's saying that is to dissuade Avraham from the deal. Because if Avraham Avinu just had to buy the cave, so we can assume that the price of the cave alone is not, not very expensive. It's just a cave. But if he's gonna have to buy the entire field, then he's gonna have a choice. He's either gonna have to take it as a gift, which he didn't really want to, but that keeps the chitim in charge of the whole thing because they can still say, we granted it to you as a gift, and obviously gifts can be taken back because people are not, uh, you know, when circumstances change, a gift can be pulled back. So uh, So they want it to be a gift. So Ephron feels that this is a way he can retain control over the situation or the chitim can continue to exercise control because they're making an offer that they assume Avraham Avinu will refuse, won't, won't agree to, or he'll have to compromise. He'll say, okay, uh, I'll have to take the gift because Ephron is saying it's a package deal. If you're going to uh, have this cave, you're also going to have to take the field. Now, that's one way of reading it. Some people try to read it as he's just trying to make money off of Avraham Avinu. But uh, I don't think that he was just trying to make money off of Abraham Avinu. I think that he was, his objective was to try to dissuade Abraham Avinu. from Pharaoh? I think you might have said it before. Well, the commentaries talk about that. I don't want to get too far afield. It's another parasha. But the, they do talk, they ask about why he was willing to do that, why he did that there. And he doesn't do that. Huh? No, he rejected from Saddam. But he, he, did, he took from uh, Paro. And there's a question of why, why he did that. And I, probably the, the pshat reason is because he didn't want to, he would have blown his cover if he showed that he didn't take the gifts. I mean, why would you not take gifts if I'm marrying your sister? Why are you not taking the gifts? In the end, Paro kicked him out. But... Uh, the gifts were given after. No, no, they were given before. They were given before. When he took Sarah, he gave him gifts. Yes. Huh? No, the first time he went to Egypt, he was given gifts when they took Sarah, and then but then in the but he couldn't say I don't want the gifts because how can you say I don't want the gifts? I'm uh, marrying your sister. The, Who? The, he didn't see Pharaoh again. Avimelech gives him gifts at the end. Yeah, he gives him gifts at the end, but they have, he has a relationship with Abimelech. It's a little different. Um, in any case, so the um, so he says to Ephron. He says, fine, I will give the money for the field, take it from me, and I'll bury my dead there. And Efron says, this is a very famous uh, thing. He says to him, my master, listen to me. It's only a land of 400 shekel kesef between us. What is it? Just to bury your dead. Why are you making a big deal out of it? Four hundred shekel kesef is a huge amount of money. How do we know? Because we know that a, the price of a slave was twenty shekel, twenty shekel kesef, meaning, and, and that's an extremely expensive item. You would think, because that's an item that uh, that is, you know, basically purchasing someone who's going to work for you for their whole life. Twenty shekel, and he's asking him four hundred shekel. So it's an exorbitant amount of money. Exactly what it would correspond to in today's numbers. I'm not exactly sure, but uh, but it's a, it's a very very large amount of money. If you look at what the fines are that the Torah imposes, the biggest fine is uh, maybe a hundred shekel or maybe fifty or a hundred shekel. That's it. You won't see anything larger than that. So four hundred is a lot of money. And he says, what's a what's a field of four hundred shekel? And again. Seemingly, see, there's one way to read it is, and a lot of the commentaries read it this way that the idea of Ephron is he's trying to rip off Avraham Avinu. So he's sort of like hinting to him, oh, it's a feel, there's no reason to pay. It's only 400 shekel, like, uh, you know, in order to tell him what the price is so he'll pay in full. That's one way of reading it. But another way of reading it is that he's trying to discourage Avraham Avinu because he's saying it's extremely expensive. So maybe you should just take it and bury your dead. And then, you know, don't worry about paying for it because it's not, you know, it's too expensive. And so then what will happen is that Avram Avinu will feel compelled. He has no choice. He has to bury his wife. So therefore, he's going to go and he's going to bury her without purchasing the field and without purchasing the cave. And that keeps the Chitim in charge. And that allows them to claim that Avram Avinu is burying in their burial plot. And he's one of us. He's not a distinct uh, uh, entity. He's one of us. So, uh, and of course, Vaishma, Avraham, El Avraham heard Ephron, which means he heard what the real intent of Ephron was. He heard what the kavana of Ephron was, what he really wanted, not just the words. And therefore, Vaishkol, Avraham, Elephron at the He weighed out to Ephron the money that he spoke in the ears of the Benechet. The best currency. Ovela, Socher means it was. You could spend it anywhere because there was some uh, there was some uh, money that maybe was only was uh, only uh, uh, used or was only acceptable in certain local uh, areas. But this was over the socher You could take it anywhere. It was the best silver; the quality of the silver was very good, and they weighed it out to be exactly right. He weighed it out to them before he would even bury Sarah because he didn't want it to be a favor from uh, Ephron, and he didn't want it to be a favor from the Chiti, and then. The field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which is in front of Mamreya, the field and the cave that was in it, and all of the trees around it, it became the possession of Avraham in front of all of the Benechet, and only then. So, in other words, the idea was, that only once it belonged to Avram and it was a Jewish plot of land and a Jewish cemetery plot, then Avram Avinu buried his wife. But he could only demonstrate that by by shelling out the money and, uh, and and having an independent acquisition of it, not by taking it as a gift, because gifts always have strings attached no matter what. And the strings attached here would not only be political, uh, the claim would be made that it really still belonged to the chitim, but also would be spiritual, that Avram. And Sarah really belonged to us, just like the way that Paro wanted to say Yaakov is now a national treasure of Egypt. We don't want him to be buried in Israel. It's problematic for him to be buried in Israel. And so, so too, uh, he didn't want, the Chitim would like to take possession of, uh, of Avraham and Sarah and claim them as their own rather than have them, uh, independent, uh, owners of their, uh, of a plot of land in, in Eretz Israel for, for many reasons, for both spiritual reasons and political reasons. They didn't want it. So Avraham Avinu insisted, he used leverage, you know, the fact that he had the respect of the chitim, he used that leverage, and he used, of course, money, you know, that money talks. And he made the acquisition before he would bury Sarah, so there wouldn't be any lack of clarity as to where he buried her, that he buried her on his own plot that he purchased with his own money. And that was very significant, um, a a very significant demonstration of the autonomy of Avraham Avinu. But what you see in this parashan, I think it's very important, is two areas in which Avram Avinu was particularly uh, emphatic about keeping the Jewish identity, so to speak, distinct from the Kana'ani identity. One was in burial and the other one was in marriage because he says to the Eved the uh, that he sends to his birthplace to, re- to find a wife for Yitzchak, he says, definitely never take my son back there. Definitely don't take a, a woman don't take anybody from the from the daughters of the around here, because again that's a way of showing we are distinct from them we are not a part of this culture we are we are separate from this culture we won't even marry into this culture so just like we won't be buried together with the members of this culture we won't marry into the members of this culture we go to our own culture and even though Rivka was not, was you know Avraham Avinu obviously left his homeland for a reason because his family was not living up to the ideals that he was living up to. But he saw in his family material that could be worked with. He knew that his family had something to work with. In fact, there's, uh, there's reason to believe that, like the rabbis say, Terach did Teshuvah. That uh, Terach and his family had some connection to the ideals of Avraham Avinu, Maybe he managed to have an impact on them before he left home. That could be. But definitely, you see that Terach came with Avraham. It says that Terach left Ur Kasdim la He originally left uh, Ur to go to Kenaan, meaning seemingly with Avraham Avinu. Like most of them in say that Avraham Avinu received the mitzvah to go to Eretz Kanaan when he was in Ur Kasdim. And his father went with him. But only came to Haran and then said, okay, it's enough. I don't want to go any further. I can't go any further. I want to stay in Haran. He didn't want to go live a nomadic life with Avram in Ur-Kasdim. Only Lot was willing to do that. Why was Lot willing to do that? It seems random. Why was Lot willing to do that? Besides that he didn't have a father. And maybe Avram was like a father figure to him. But the fact is that you see that the family of Avram was on the program with it. Even Terach seemingly was on the program to go. And Lot was on the program to go, even though Lot kind of went off the path later on and Terach didn't quite follow through. But you see that there was some nugget of goodness in the family of Avram Avinu that Avram knew he could go back and take another person from that culture and they would turn, he could work with them. And the same thing happened with Yaakov Avinu when he needs to marry somebody. That his mother said, don't let him marry the Binotachitim. Same thing, because Esav married. Hittite women, women from the Benot Tachiti, and, and Rivka said this can't happen with uh, with Yaakov, we have to send him again back to where we came from, so that he'll end up with people who are uh, decent. And even Lavan, even when, when, when the Eved Avraham comes to uh, to to seek uh, Rivka's hand in marriage for Yitzchak, and he meets Lavan, what does Lavan say? Bo Beruch Hashem. He uses the word Yurke Vavke. He uses the name of Hashem. Which is very interesting. And he says, And he says, I cleaned out the house. And what does Rashi say? I cleaned out the house from the idols that were here. Meaning that they knew what Abraham Avinu stood for. It's a Midrash, but it shows you that they knew what Abraham Avinu stood for. They knew what he was about. And therefore, they respected it and they had some sensitivity to it. Even though maybe they were more assimilated. But there was something there. He had an influence. And that's why he went back to his original culture to seek a wife for, for Yitzchak. And, and that's why Rivka wanted to seek a wife for Yaakov from their culture as well. In fact, one of the questions that's asked, I think it's very interesting. One of the questions that's asked is, you see that there's ele toledot adam. And in the book of Breshit, there's always toledot, descendants. There's toledot adam, ze sefer toledot adam. There's Ele toledot Noach. These are the descendants of Noach. There's Ele toledot Yitzchak ben Abraham. Avraham will Yitzchak, which is this coming week's parashah, right? There's Ele toledot Yaakov, right, which is in which is going to come up in a couple of weeks. Okay, you have all of them have a description of these are their descendants, these are their offspring. But there's one person it never says Ele toledot Abraham. It never says Ele toledot Abraham. It says Ele toledot Adam. Well, it says it says Sefer toledot Adam. Eletodot Noach, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, but not Abraham. So, what's the reason? So, some people give a more a more drash reason, and they say, "Oh, it's because everybody is Abraham's son. He doesn't have he doesn't have a limit because anybody who identifies with Abraham Avinu he becomes like his son." But there's a pshat reason, which is that it does say something. It doesn't say Ele Avraham, but it says Ele It says these are the descendants of Terach. And if you read the story that way, it actually is very eye-opening. So a, a rabbi, uh, I, I heard a shiur about this maybe five or six years ago. I, I was, maybe, I, I don't remember exactly, but I think it was like maybe four or five years ago, whatever. I heard a shiur on this that really opened my eyes, that the rabbi pointed this out um, and uh, it, that it says, Ele toldot terach. It's in the end of Parashat Noach. Um, where is it? It doesn't say that about any of the other people in Parshat Noach. It only says it about Terach. And it says that he had Haran and Nahor and Avraham. It never says Toledot of Abraham, but it says Toledot of Terach. And this rabbi pointed out that this idea of Eletodo Terach makes a lot of sense. That the story of Bereshit is actually not the story of the offspring of Avraham. It's actually the offspring of Terach that are the story. Because you see that Avraham marries somebody from his own family. And then Yitzchak marries somebody who's also a descendant of Terach. And then Yaakov marries somebody who's also a descendant of Terach. In other words, there's always a returning to Terach. In fact, even in the Haggadah, what do we read? We read in the Haggadah the Pasuk from Sefer Yoshua, where Yoshua says to the people, Remember your ancestors that they lived on the other side of the river. And he says, the, the, he says, Terach, avi Avram, vavi Nachor. Terach, the father of Abraham and the father of Nachor, vayavdueloi machirim. We read it in the, in the, in the Haggadah of Pesach. In other words, he says, if you want to know your history, it goes back to Terach, actually. Terach is the, Terach. So really, the story is the story of the, the, the descendant of Terach. And in fact, when Avram leaves home, it says, it, you, it, in the end of Noah, it says, It says, Terach took them to go to Eretz Kanaan, even though we know that Hashem told Avram to go. Meaning, Terach was an active participant in that in the beginning. He just didn't follow all the way through. But that itself said something about the family of Avraham, that it had certain potential, certain capabilities that he wanted to draw from them. So, both in burial. And in marriage Avraham Avinu is going back Is trying to stay totally separate And distinct from the culture The Chiti culture The Kenani culture And demonstrate that he is on a path That is all his own That is fundamentally separate And unique And a a, a path of Kiddushah So the the path of Avraham Avinu Is different from that Of the Kena'ani in two ways In death and in marriage Okay and, and, I, and that's really, if you, if you think about it that way, that's really what the parashah is about. It's about distinction. And it's about the centrality of Eretz Israel. Because he says, don't let my son go back to, you know, leave this country and go back to where I came from. Don't let him go back. Make sure he stays here. I'm going to stay here also. Okay, just like there's only one place we can be buried and there's only one place that Jewish life can continue, which is here in Eretz Israel. So the centra- showing the distinction of the Jewish identity in terms of in burial and in terms of marriage, to continue the legacy of Judaism requires that we recognize that our history, our ancestors are distinct. So we have separate cemetery that demonstrates that our that our history is a distinct history of individuals who lived a life that is differentiated from the life of the non-Jewish world. But also that we marry people to continue that legacy that have the same values that we have, not the values. From the culture around us, but the values that stem from the Torah and from Judaism, and that's the—that's uh, really what the parasha mainly focuses on. This struggle, because burial is something that's universal. Burial is something that you know w- that speaks to our humanity in the most general sense. That every person dies, no matter what religion they are. Everybody dies, so you have to be buried. But even in death, by burying separately, you're demonstrating that this person's identity and their legacy is a distinct legacy. It's not to be. Uh, subsumed under any other uh, heading. And that's what Avraham needed to do, even in death, to show his distinction and his difference, even in making sure, of course, that the next generation would continue his path to make sure that it maintained its distinction and difference as well. Oh, I see that you were asking a question and I, I, I see the little hand there. Sorry about that. What was the question? Wait, let me see if I unmuted you. Yeah. Oh um, it's, I mean, it's just maybe, maybe it's just uh, grammatical or what is the reasoning the negotiation when um it says you know everything that everything that um Ephraim did was in front of the eyes of his of his people but then when abraham spoke he said oh, he yeah. that they, what is the reasoning behind all like the way they were negotiating like you know, that's he, a uh, good question yeah i mean the, that might just be that might just be technical it's a good question it, it might be technical in the sense that it's, uh, one thing is, uh, is just verbal and one thing is actions, but it also could be that, um, that there is, you know, a lot of times when you see, when, when the Torah describes seeing, it means seeing things on the surface. And when it describes hearing, it means understanding. So I'll give you an example, of a nice example of that uh, at the end of uh, actually this coming parashah of toledot, it says, by Yeshua, when, when after the whole debacle of the stealing of the Bacha by Yaakov, so we, we hear that, you know, Rivka's cover to get Yaakov away from Esav is to say that he needs to go get married, right? He's getting older, he needs to go get married. And so she's going to send him away. Uh, and she doesn't want him to, 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 he says, Don't marry anybody from the daughters of Canaan. So, what does it, what does it say? Yaakov heard his mother and father, and he went to Padan Aram to get married. Meaning he understood that he should only marry a woman from their family. But what does it say after that? And Yaakov saw that the women of Kinaan were bad in the eyes of Yitzchak his father. So, therefore, what did he do? He went to Ishmael, Good old Uncle Ishmael, and he married somebody who was the daughter of Ishmael. But it says, Al Leisha, He didn't divorce the Canaanite women that he had already married. He just added on a woman that he thought his father would appreci- w- 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 would uh, respect and would like. After he got displaced with the Bacha, he wanted to win favor of his father. See the difference? One is by Ishmael Yaakov Elavivelimo. Yaakov understood the concept and therefore he knew he could only marry a Jewish woman. But Vayar Esav Esav just saw the external, the superficial He said, oh I see My dad doesn't like Kenani women That's why he's upset with me I better bring a wife that he likes He didn't get the idea of the deeper meaning That marrying someone who's from a culture That contradicts the values of Judaism Is inherently bad He just thought that my dad doesn't like Canaanite women And that's maybe we turned him off towards me So I'd better go get a wife he's going to like And maybe he'll like me again that's the difference in seeing. A lot of times means that it's on the surface. Something that's done externally, it's on the surface, whereas hearing means understanding. And so it could be, could be that Ephron's outer actions were of ambiguous meaning. So what was seen might not necessarily be what was really being conveyed beneath the surface. You know, whereas Avraham Avinu was conveying a message that was understood by the uh, uh, by the uh, Chitim. Maybe it means that Ephron's message was less clear, so therefore they saw what he they saw what he was about, but they didn't necessarily fully grasp, you know, what his intentions were. Could be that's a good that's a very good point, very good yeah, observation. So may, may, makes a lot of sense. Now. Yeah, but that's in general when the Torah uses the difference between Shmiyah, that's why you say Shema Yisrael. Listen doesn't mean with your ears, you know, it, it means with your mind, right? It means it means to understand, understand something understand The Jewish people That Hashem is our God And Hashem is one Not not to just To hear the sound So Lishmoah Oftentimes means To understand And that's That's the best proof Is the Yaakov Versus Esav Shmi'ah Versus Re'iyah Hearing and seeing Two different things So um, So in any case That seems to be the, uh, the the theme of the parasha The theme of the parasha Is making sure That the distinction The distinctiveness That Avraham Avinu uh, achieved through his leaving home through his coming to Eretz Kanaan for the past decades many decades and now he's passing the baton to the next generation that that distinctiveness is not lost in it that the legacy is not lost to so the burial is 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 distinct and that the future is not lost that the marriage of his son is a marriage that will maintain the distinct the distinction that he created and will continue that path that he established and that's why it's so critical both in our uh uh, in our uh, burial of our, uh, those who pass away, that we make sure that they're buried in a respectful place that is designated for people who are of the same uh, convictions and beliefs and religion, but also that we marry people who are of the same convictions and belief and religion. That's how we continue the tradition, both in terms of how we look at the past and understand the past, that, it's, uh, that we have a unique history, but also how we pave the path of the future, that we have a unique future and destiny too. It's not just about the past, it's about the future as well. And I think that's what, that's, if you look at it that way, that this is Avraham Avinu basically um, uh, consolidating his legacy in a way, making sure that what he's accomplished and what Sarah has accomplished is not lost, is not diluted or assimilated into any other culture, that it maintains its separateness, um, in this way And it's, it's actually If you look at it that way It's really You could see why It's such an important parasha And a transition To Yitzchak Who's going to be The next one of the patriarchs And have his own Unique challenges That we'll learn about Bezor Hashem next week Okay Thank you everybody For coming